Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. This Sunday sermon was given by Senior Pastor, Reverend Dr. Ray Hilton. If you'd like more information about First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, please visit firstpresevanston.org. Our scripture reading today is from the Apostle Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 3, verses 1 through 18, in the New Testament section of the Red Pew Bibles on page 172. Please join me in a prayer for illumination. Lord God, Lord Jesus, please still our hearts and quiet our minds that we may hear your word and do your will. Amen. Second Corinthians verse, chapter 3, verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Surely we do not need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you, do we? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter of Christ, prepared by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we toward God. Not that we are competent of ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. Our competence is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of letter, but of spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, chiseled in letters on stone tablets, came in glory so that the people of Israel could not gaze at Moses' face because of the glory of his face, a glory now set aside, how much more will the ministry of the Spirit come in glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, much more does the ministry of justification abound in glory. Indeed, what once had glory has lost its glory because of the greater glory. For if what was set aside came through glory, much more has the permanent come in glory. Since then, we have such a hope, boldness, not like Moses, who put a veil over his face to keep the people of Israel from gazing at the end of the glory that was being set aside. But their minds were hardened. Indeed, to this very day, when they hear the reading of the Old Covenant, that same veil is still there, since only in Christ is it set aside. Indeed, to this very day, wherever Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And all of us, with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, 
are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. From this comes the, from this, for this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. And I want to welcome all of you here this morning to our church. For those of you who are joining us online, we welcome you to our congregation. And we are in the process of working through this teaching series that we've been calling Encouragement for a, for a Grace-Filled Church. We've been doing this now. This is our third week. And we've been encouraging all of our small groups and all of our brothers and sisters here to, to consider taking up this book and reading it. Uh, the Bible is not an easy book to read, of course, and uh, we need the Holy Spirit to help us as we read it, and God promises that he will help us and guide us into all truth. So I would encourage you to sort of open your mind up to what Second Corinthians might have for us. When I was in seminary many years ago, one of the books that I read for my polity class was a book called Presbyterian Polity for Church Officers. And it was written by a woman, a wonderful lady, the Reverend Dr. Joan Gray. And that book was just, within Presbyterian circles, was a really important book that many of us at that time were reading so that we could pass the polity exam. Well, a few years ago, I think it was in 2014, that Joan wrote a, a new book called Sailboat Church, a God-powered adventure. And I want to just walk you through a few of her ideas before we get to the meat of what Second Corinthians has for us. She says, many churches today are decorated with symbols that come out of the early days of Christianity. One of the symbols of the church, then, is a boat. And if you were to go into the chapel and you look at some of the stained glass windows, you will see images there of a boat symbolizing the church. In Jesus' time, there were two ways to power a boat on open water. One was to use muscles. You know, you, you, you got the row and you started rowing. And the other way, as you can see in that image, was to harness the power of the wind. When early Christians used a boat as a symbol for the church, it was never a rowboat. It was always a sailboat. And that is because on the day of Pentecost, with, as we hear that line, with the sound like a rushing wind, Jesus' promise of power became a reality. The first Christians then experienced the Spirit of God moving them, moving them along as the wind moves the sailboat. And from the beginning, the church was intended to be a God-powered movement. And on Pentecost, the believers found what they had been missing, the gift of spiritual resources to participate with Jesus in his mission to change the world. And as they felt the wind of the Spirit blowing them around that day, they raised their sails, and they began the process of learning how to become sailors. But 
Dr. Gray says there are also rowboat churches. And rowboat congregations and rowboat churches believe that their progress depends on their own strength, their own wisdom, their own resources. And it's all about how hard and how long people are willing to row. And in that model, oh, you know what usually happens when people get tired? They say, you know what, forget about this. This is for the birds. I can't do this anymore. And suddenly the number of people rowing the boat gets lesser and lesser, and the church shrinks, and eventually those congregations die. So she wrote the book to encourage churches, put down your oars, put up your sails. Can you say that with me this morning? Put down your oars. One more time, church. And the question we must ask ourselves as we read in 2 Corinthians 3 is this. Is Paul's ministry then powered by the wind in the sails, or is it powered by the strength of his arm? And if you look at the text, you will see some clues there that can help us figure that out. And if you have your Bibles, why don't you go ahead, whether on your phone or the actual Bible, go ahead and open it up. It doesn't hurt to do that. Remember what we said last week. We said that Paul was the leader and the founding pastor of this church. And even as the founding pastor and leader of the church, Paul was mired in conflict. He was mired in misunderstandings. And the Corinthians then seemed prepared to issue to him a no-confidence vote. And instead, they were going to cast their votes in support of the false teachers and the false leaders among them. And in chapter 3, they are so, so horrible. Things are so horrible that they wanted him to send them officials' letters of reference before he showed up. Now, I'm talking about the founding pastor of the church. And they're saying, Paul, if you're going to come visit us next time, Send us a letter from a, a reference that vouches that you are worthy to come and be with us. And you heard the reading that Paul essentially says to them in 21st century language, are you crazy? Are you crazy? And he says, we do not need, as some do, letters of recommendation. He said, look in the mirror. You are our official letter of reference. The ministry that God has allowed us to do, the ministry that God has allowed us to fulfill among you, and the fruit of the work that we have done is our letter. Look at the evidence. I don't need any letters. And so for the rest of the chapter, he articulates then again for his critics. And I would argue that when you read 2 Corinthians 1 all the way to chapter 7, this is what he's doing. He's arguing that you guys have got it wrong. You're being deluded by these false teachers. God's work among you was done through me. My ministry among you is validated by, by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. So let's just look, because in answering their question and their concern, Paul helps us in looking at our church. Someone said that the Bible is not written 
about us, or for us, rather. The Bible is not written for us. It's written, you know, like we're reading 2 Corinthians, it's written for that church, but it's also written in a way that will draw us in and teach us principles. So one of the things Paul wants this church to see is that in his ministry, he exercises humble leadership. I would suggest to you that this is one of the pillars of sailboat churches, humble leadership. We have a lot of deacons and elders and trustees, current and former, sitting among us. We have some people, some of you online, you've been approached by others to come and help serve our church. And we're not asking you just to bring your muscle. We're asking you to bring a level of character and heart to the work that God is calling you to do. Humble leadership. This is one of the pillars of sailboat churches. The thing about humble leaders is that their confidence and their competence, they are from God. And in an earlier time in Paul's life, if you met Paul and you started talking to him, Paul was quick to roll out his curriculum vitae. He was quick to tell you how smart he was, the books that he has read, the things that he has accomplished. But when Christ entered Paul's life, he threw his accomplishments out the window. In fact, he calls it, and we're going to be polite here this morning, he calls it rubbish. He threw it on the rubbish pile. And he was no longer Paul confident. He was God confident. He began to magnify God and he minimized his life. And it's the same idea that you hear from John the Baptist. When John the Baptist met Jesus, finally, and he baptized him, he said to everyone who would hear, he must increase, I must decrease. And that is, that is one of the pillars of sailboat churches. No wonder Paul's critics then regarded him as weak. They regarded him as lacking the resources of a true leader. And Paul basically says, you know what, guys, you're right. I am nothing. God is everything, and without him I can do nothing. And the question we must ask ourselves is, does anyone have the power? Does anyone have the resources to accomplish the work that God wants done in this world? And the answer must always be no. In the book of in the book of uh, one of the Old Testament books that's not coming to mind right now, the writer says that it's not by might and it's not by power, but it's by your spirit, says the Lord. The answer is no. Oswald Chambers says it very, very eloquently. And I hold on to this. I want you to know I hold on to these words. Oswald Chambers wrote, he said, God can achieve his purposes either through the absence of human power and resources or the abandonment of reliance on them. All through history, Chambers writes, God has chosen and used nobodies because their unusual dependence on him made possible the unique display of his power and grace God chose and used somebodies only when they renounced dependence on their natural abilities and their resources. So one of the pillars on which we want First Press to stand is on that quality of leadership that is totally dependent on God. There's another pillar 
of sailboat churches, and that is they live what's called a new covenant life, new covenant living. And one of the questions Paul asked essentially in 2 Corinthians is, who's responsible for the new covenant? And when you talk about a new covenant, it means that there was an old covenant. And Paul then takes his critics all the way back to Exodus 19 and 20, where God summons Moses up to Mount Sinai, and God, in the process of the time with Moses on the mountain, gave him two tablets of stone. And on those tablets of stone were written the laws and the commandments of God that would give order and direction and clarification for how the people must live their lives in the culture in which they found themselves. And when Moses gave them the commandments the commandments of God to the people and said, God wants you to do these things, they responded, very confidently, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And you know what happened. Did they do it? They didn't do it. Could they do it? They tried. You see, even though the old covenant and the laws, they were good, and they are good, and they are holy, it was an external reality. Friends, I want you to hear me on this. If you could just hang in there a little bit and hear me on this because this is the essence of why sailboat churches thrives, why they thrive. The covenants, the laws, they were good, they were holy, but it was an external reality. The blood of the animal sacrifice was an important thing, but it could not permanently take away sin. And this is why Paul describes the old covenant as he calls it. And you heard it in the reading. If you look at verse 6, it is the letter that kills. In verse 9, he calls it the ministry of condemnation. In verse 11, he calls it a covenant that has lost its glory. And so it was that after generations of repeated failure, God promised a new covenant through the prophet Jeremiah. He calls it a covenant of grace. And let me read a few lines from you, for you from Jeremiah 31, where the prophet says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband. And you know how they broke it with that worship of the golden calf at the foot of the mountain. And they had just said to Moses, of course we're going to do what God wants us to do. And they started worshiping the golden calf, even though I was their husband. But the Lord says, this is the covenant that I will make with my people, declares the Lord. I will put my law where? I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, saying to his brother and his sister, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The promise of new covenant living all about responding to God. It's all about being obedient to the promptings of the Holy Spirit from within us. This is where intimacy with God starts. This is where a personal relationship with God begins. This is where the promise of permanent 
forgiveness are found, and it's through the agency of God's grace. And so the thing about sailboat churches is that they understand grace. They understand grace for themselves, but for each other. They know that we're all broken people. They know that we are all stumbling along. And in churches that are, that are powered by the Holy Spirit, there is that readiness to confess. That's new covenant living. Celebrating the goodness and the grace of God. Totally dependent on grace. And in those churches, they ask themselves, can we save ourselves? How did we get over? How did we get here? And the answer is, it's not by me. It's not by my might. It's by the grace of God. I once was lost in sin, the old hymn says, and I couldn't save myself. I was sinking. But by the grace of God, love lifted me. And it is by grace that we stand. These kinds of churches, they understand the power of grace. And when they teach and when they preach and when they live and when they serve, they do it from a heart knowing that it is because of the Lord. And those people in those kinds of churches are quick to say, we don't have the capacity it is God who gives us the capacity. Here's the last thing that I want you to think about. Another sign, another pillar in sailboat churches is that they understand how people are changed. Can I say that again? In sailboat churches, they understand how people are changed. I've been guilty, let me just be very, very clear with you. I've been very guilty many times of trying to force people, guilt people, push people, manipulate people, condemn people. Been there, done that. As a father, been there, done that. And I'm learning in my later years now that people change not because I tell them to change, People change because the Spirit of God moves their hearts to change. I'm talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. And you look, Moses again takes him back to Mount Sinai. Moses was been in the presence of God for 40 days. He was standing in God's presence. And when Moses left the mountain and came down to the people the second time, you know, so, so he had to break up the law and he, he crushed it. He was so disappointed in the people, he was ready to just walk away. He goes up to the mountain a second time. God issues a second edition of the commandments. And Moses, when he finally leaves God's presence and he comes down to the people, he doesn't even know that his face is shining like a light bulb. And the people were afraid to look at Moses. You know why? They knew he had been with God. They knew that they had sinned. They knew that they had failed. And when they see Moses, they see the face of the shining of Moses' face, they suddenly became very afraid. And they said, Moses, we can't talk to you. Please put a veil on when you're speaking to us. And when Moses goes back up to God on the mountain, Moses then would reveal, remove the veil from his face. And friends, the veil over Moses' face, Paul says, illustrates the veil that covers people's minds. And so whenever we read Scripture, some of us read Scripture with a veil over our eyes. 
And we think, oh, that has nothing to do with me. And we can't see it. We can't see the face of Jesus in the Scriptures because so much of, so much of, of what Scripture has to say, what Scripture calls us to do, they simply cannot understand it because just as the people said, put the veil over your face, Moses, we have a veil over our faces. In sailboat churches, though, what happens is the Holy Spirit is such, so much at work that people are turning to the Lord. People are turning to the Lord. And it's not because of the eloquence of the pastor. It's not because of the slickness of the worship service. It's not because of the location of the church and its prominence. People are turning to the Lord because the Lord is filling the sails of that church. And when people walk into those churches, and I've heard it over and over again, and I've seen that happen in so many places I've been, you sense that there is someone here that is greater than the people, and you begin to almost weep. You begin to cry out to God. You want to turn to God because the Spirit of God is present. I remember when we visited the Casa Eldabara church in Egypt. It was on a Monday night for prayer. Church was filled with people. And I remember hearing all these people praying in Arabic. We had a little microphone on, and somebody was translating in English what the the various things they were praying about. It was a church of about 2,000 people, and it looked to me that every pew was filled. And these people were crying out to God, and it sounded like the buzzing of bees. I'll never forget that sound till I go to my grave. And these people, God, had filled the sails of that church. These people knew where their power came from. And the pastor very, very, very humbly said that that Monday night prayer meeting is the most important service in our church. That church is a sailboat church. <laughs> Hallelujah. And, and the things that they're doing in, in Egypt, and we don't have their problems. We don't have the hurdles that they have to get over politically. And God is still moving by his spirit. When people turn to the Lord, oh, hallelujah, the veil is lifted. Do you remember when the veil was lifted from your heart? Do you remember? And the question we have to ask ourselves then is, what about us? So 2 Corinthians 3 is not written to us, but it is written about us. What about us? A hundred and almost 54-year-old Presbyterian church on the corner of Chicago and Lake. What about us? What about you? When you read Scripture, is it coming clear to you? Are you is it moving your heart to just to seek after God? I have come to the conclusion that only God, only God can change the heart of a person. And if you're praying for someone to come to know the Lord, you are praying for a husband, you're praying for a, a, a wife, you're praying for a, a father or a mother or a sibling or a neighbor, Paul says that's why we're very confident. That's why we're very bold. Why? Why is Paul so bold? Because he knows that when God shows up, it's not because of him. It's because God chooses to do it in God's time and in God's way. Has the veil been lifted? And if we're going to be and continue to be a sailboat church, 
then I want you to lower your oars. Drop the oars, First Perez. We can't power our way through this century that we're in. We can't power our way through the pandemic that we're in. We can't power our way through the, the need for racial reconciliation in our community. We can't power our way through the idolatry of politics that we see in our culture. Drop the oars and begin to look to God and say, Lord, fill our sails with your spirit. And notice what Paul says at the very end, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom, there is liberty. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom and there is liberty. And that's what happens when you see chains falling, when you see addictions falling, when you see selfishness falling, when you see lying falling, when you see, when you see all of the vices and all of the, the inhibitions caused by sin, it is because the spirit of the Lord is there. And I would invite you, here's what I would ask you to do with me, and this is not to guilt anyone. This is not to make anyone feel shamed. But I would ask you in your small groups, I would ask you if you have the time and you want to join us on a Wednesday night to pray in your mission prayer group, however you are organized to pray, I just hope that you're praying because that's where the power for this church will come from. Not in our endowments, not in our funds, not in our history. It's going to come when the Spirit of God fills the sail. And that it's coming. It's coming first, for as the rain is going to fall on this place. And some of us will think we have become something other than what God has called us to be. And no, that's not true. It is still very much First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. But now the sails are being propelled by the Spirit of God. So I invite you, if there's anything I would ask you to do, is to ask God to lift the veil from your eyes so that you can see and so that you can begin to pray for us and pray for our community in this beautiful city of Evanston. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And God's people say, Amen.